so honest and uh, vulnerable about that. Um, I want to just say one other thing about this uh, property campaign, and uh, we have just a few weeks left, so if you're tired of hearing about it, just a few weeks left, but it is incredibly important, the impact, as Clay just said, and one of the things, you know, I've not been in very many capital campaigns, I've actually never led one at all, Um, and um, so I always had this question in my mind, and I know some others have, like, what should we give? What does it mean to kind of give something, to, to give a stretch gift? What does that actually look like? What does that really look like? It made me think a little bit about Noah and the ark, since we're using this kind of, you know, a sailboat kind of analogy. And my guess is, if he had other people helping him out, he didn't just say, well, just go get stuff and bring it back in. But there were some people who, uh, who could bring in longer pieces of wood, and some people who could bring in shorter pieces of wood. And everyone had kind of their own side piece of wood that they could come to to build this. And that's great. And those, you know, we need all pieces. We need all sizes. And um, so I was thinking about that. There are some here who can only bring a smaller piece. And one of the things I want you to know is that we have never asked, I want to be super clear, anyone to go into debt over this at all. You know, we're not asking you, you know, this is not a prosperity gospel. Sell your house now, give it here, and you're going to have the greatest life ever. So we're not asking you for that. But I also want to be really clear that for those of us who have longer pieces of wood, you know, to bring in, if you catch what I'm saying here, uh, if too many of you bring in shorter pieces of wood, we're going to have a hole in this boat. Um, And so what we're really asking um, is for you to really kind of pray over that and ask for that, right? We want you to, you know, kind of come in and and say, this is really what we feel like is a stretch. And so this may be helpful. It may not be. I didn't even know they did these kinds of things. But again, I'm, I'm not that bright when it comes to these capital campaigns. But when it comes to kind of raising $10 million, there are a lot of different size gifts that our professionals say, this is kind of what you will need. So I want to show you this. If it's not helpful, just close your eyes. But if it is helpful, this is kind of what they gave to us. They said, okay, if you really want to raise this 10, you should probably have, you know, $1 million gift and then six $250,000 gifts. And then it just kind of goes on down. And see, these are just kind of different pieces, sizes of wood. And what we need are all people, right? I mean, we need people who are going to give under $9,999. I mean, we need you. So I want to be very clear uh, about what we need. If, if we don't get a million dollar gift, then we'll, you know, we need two more $500,000 gifts. If we get $3 million gifts, then we would need fewer of some of those, right? This is just kind of how it works. But I just wanted you to see if you're kind of at this place right now where you're discerning what exactly does it look like, I, I want you to just kind of, I wanted to at least see you to see this because for me, it's helpful to kind of know what kind of number this is. It's helpful for Megan and I to know what size piece of wood we are kind of called to stretch and to give. And so I thought maybe this would be helpful. If it is, great. If it's not, then just act like you didn't see it. Uh, Thank you, uh, Betsy. So I just want to continue to ask you, especially over this next week, right? We've been kind of thinking through this and talking through this um, to really begin to continue to discern what it is that God may be calling us to give that we can have an impact as Clay so articulately expressed it uh, for the coming kingdom of God. Well, with that, we are going to get back to Luke uh, chapter 9, um, and it is good to be here with you today. I wasn't here last week, so I'm thankful to Pastor Scott for preaching. And uh, today we are going to be looking um, at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. So let's hear what Luke has to say to us today. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, the one of the, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. 
Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. And he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them all, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? And those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed. And when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Indeed, I truly tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be present with us this morning. Not only, Lord, that you are present, but that we would recognize you. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you've been with us during this Luke series, you know I'm beginning to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I want to say it once again, which is that when it comes to Scripture, especially when we're beginning perhaps a new passage, it is critical that we don't jump over what is oftentimes at the beginning thinking that we want to get to the real meat of what Luke in this case may be telling us. Right? It might be easy for us to say, well, we want to know more about who does Jesus, uh, who is Jesus, and we want to jump to that. We want to jump to what does it mean that he's going to suffer. We want to jump to what does it mean that we uh, pick up our cross daily. But in doing so, as we have said so many times, we may very well forget what is foundational to the passage. You see, this story begins today with these words, once when Jesus was praying. Right? This is not a fairy tale. In a fairy tale, they oftentimes begin with what? Once upon a time. And we just kind of run past that. We want to get to the exciting part. But once when Jesus was praying is not once upon a time. Right? Once when Jesus was praying is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Because Jesus, as we've said, and as Luke likes to point out, is always going off on his own. He is always going off to pray. It is incredibly crucial to who Jesus is, which means it must be vital to our own lives as well. You see, prayer is not just the words that we speak, as we oftentimes think when we say, let us pray, we almost always think there are going to be words that then come out. Instead, it is genuinely a posture that we have. There's this fascinating part of this particular uh, uh, story at this beginning that I, I find interesting. You notice it did not say, after Jesus was done praying alone, he said, amen, and then he looked and started talking to his disciples. No, what it actually says is, when Jesus was praying, and then he went on and continued this conversation, there's no end to his prayer In fact, his discussion is enveloped within this prayer. It reminds us of what somebody says, which is that prayer is an attentiveness to God. 
And any time that we limit prayer to what we do before a meal or what we do in here, what we do when we're on our own in our living rooms or in other places, all those things are important. But that is not all that prayer is. Prayer is an attentiveness to God. It is a posture that we cultivate. I like what Craig Barnes says, which is that God is always present, but is rarely apparent. What that means is that prayer is the art and the posture of beginning to make God more and more apparent in our lives. That what we do as we become a praying people, it does not mean that we spend even more time on our knees, though that is fine and good and right. What it means is that in our very ordinary lives, we are beginning to recognize where Jesus is at work. This is what it means to become a praying people. It begins, we begin to see where God is present in our lives. And in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this prayer that Jesus is having, he asks the disciples this incredibly crucial question, who, who am I? Who, who do the crowds say that I am? What's important to see, again, is Luke is this narrator. He, he's putting the story together perfectly. In the last chapter, chapter 8, um, um, Pastor Scott preached on this, when there was the storm in the water. Remember that after that, the disciples said, who is this that even though the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this Jesus? Then earlier in this particular chapter, in the ninth chapter, remember Herod, uh, we didn't really touch on it much, Herod uh, was, was baffled by Jesus. He said, wait, I've already beheaded uh, G, uh, John the Baptist. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And so Luke is beginning to kind of get us to be aware that this is the crucial question. Who is Jesus? So he says, Jesus says to the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And the crowds say, oh, the disciples say, well, uh, you know, some say uh, Elijah, uh, others, uh, others, they do say John the Baptist, others say this great prophet, you know, that that's who you are. And all of that is great and fine. These were all good people, but to be clear, it was not enough. Jesus knew this was not enough. Jesus was not just some good dude. Jesus was not just, you know, somebody, some prophet. He wasn't just a wonderful teacher. There was something more to who Jesus was. And this is what he wanted to know about the disciples. And at this very moment, right, just picture if this was a movie and all of a sudden the camera kind of hones in on Jesus. Because now Jesus is getting to the question that he actually wants to know. And he looks at the disciples. And I, I think that Luke would also, as he's writing this, think that he's also looking at each and every one of us. And he says this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, Peter always the one who's very rapid in a response, says, you are the Messiah, right? In other words, you are the Christ. You are the Lord, right? Peter answers this question, and is he correct? Yes, not a trick question. Thank you, Greg. He is correct, right? Now, at this point, if this were common day, right, current day, what would happen? Well, confetti would begin to fall from the skies, right? You would have a champagne cork. It'd be like, you know, I can't, that was bad. I can't do it. Anyone? That's better. Would pop off, right? 
And the song, One Shining Moment, would begin to play in the background. Right? Because this is a huge moment. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the crux of the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah. But just as a reminder that this is not a movie and that Jesus is constantly surprising us, this is not what happens. In fact, we're told immediately Jesus begins to tell them to be quiet. He tells them this sternly, we are told. It's not a request. It's a command. This is what we call the messianic secret. And there's lots of different reasons that are given as to why this is. I, I kind of think probably the most likely is the fact that Jesus uh, is in his own time. And he knows that he needs his ministry to go as long as it can go. Um, he doesn't want it left up to the disciples. And if all of a sudden they begin to tell everybody, oh, he's the Messiah, oh, he's the Lord, that very likely Jesus' ministry is going to come to an end even sooner than it did. But what is also interesting is that this is a very fast-paced story. Because Jesus, again, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, well, don't tell anyone. Instead, he immediately begins to say what is going to have to happen to him as the Messiah. About the fact that he's going to have to undergo suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and that he's going to be killed on the third day before being raised again. I like what Michael Card says. He says that after the critical question of Jesus's identity is answered, Jesus must now undeceive his followers about what it means that he was the Messiah. Now, I think it's probably pretty hard for us to understand what a shock this would have been to the early disciples. We're 2,000 years later. We all know the story, most of us at least. Most of us learned it as a kid. We, don't, we, we, can't, even, we can't put ourselves in that place of thinking uh, that they would have felt as if well, this was not what the Messiah was supposed to be. And so for them, it would have been very hard to understand. In fact, I think it answers why uh, so often we ask this on Easter. How, why were the disciples not there at the tomb after three days? Jesus literally says, I'm going to be raised. How come they weren't there ready for Jesus to be raised? I have a sneaking suspicion they never actually heard him get to the end of the sentence. That as soon as he said the Messiah must suffer, all of a sudden they started asking questions. You were in conversations with people, uh, you know, where as soon as they ask something or they're telling this long thing, if you have a question, it's all you can think about. You have no idea what else they're saying. You just can't wait till they shut up. So you can ask them the question. So maybe that's that. Maybe they're in a state of shock. Maybe they're just so convinced that Peter must have been wrong because this is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so I have a sneaking suspicion they didn't even hear the fact that Jesus said he was going to be raised. They just could not imagine how would a Messiah do this? How could this be the Messiah? This is not the Messiah that we had imagined. But before they could ask any of their great questions, Jesus keeps going. There's no room for a breath in this passage. Because all of a sudden, he begins to show them why there is this remarkable link between who he was and what he was going to do and what the disciples were then called to do. Those who want to come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will save it. Now, this is one of those things that we oftentimes say in the church. It's very churchy. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourselves. If you live, if you die to yourself, you'll live. And if you live for yourself, you'll die. And we like to say these kinds of things, but I'm not sure we always know exactly what it is that we're saying. I mean, it, what does it mean to die to yourself? What does it mean to pick up your cross daily? 
We're not going to answer all those questions today, but as I was thinking about this passage, my hope is just to scoot us down the line just a little bit more in our understanding of what this means. First of all, to pick up your cross daily, let's be clear about this. Luke is the only version, if you're curious, that uses the word daily. What does this daily mean? Well, obviously it means something that we do. Yeah, sometimes it's just real obvious like that. Yeah. So it means it's something that we do daily, right? Now, that may seem really obvious. That's why you got it, Mike. And this is, uh, it, it may seem like, oh, that, oh, of course, but how many of us you know, don't live like that, right? How many of us don't think about picking up that cross daily? How many of us you know, think about the fact, oh, well, we, know, we pick up our cross, we check it out at the welcome desk when we come in, then we have it in here, and then before we leave, we give it back to the welcome desk, and then we go home, and then we live our real lives. And then we come back on next Sunday, right? But it does not say, pick up your cross weekly, right? It says daily, right? In other words, this is this every day, there is this intentional choice to follow Jesus, to pick up your cross, to die to yourself. This is not easy to do. But what else is significant about this sense of dying uh, that you might have life is this word for life. The word for life here um, is the word psyche, not the word bios. Bios means kind of a physical death, right? But clearly this isn't just a call to martyrdom because it's very hard to die physically every day. Agreed? It instead is this internal psyche, how am I dying inside every day? How am I dying to myself and living for Jesus? How am I picking up my cross? How am I denying myself every single day? How am I saying no to the gods that are within me that would prefer to control my world and who oftentimes I would prefer to control my life? Instead of saying yes to the Jesus who longs to actually control our lives, each and every part of it. Because the more that we begin to understand the identity of who Jesus is, the more that our inner lives will begin to be transformed. Here's what uh, Eugene Peterson says about those who kind of live in this kind of mentality of picking up your cross daily. He says this, ascetic practice sweeps out the clutter of the God-pretentious self making ample space for access to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It embraces and prepares for a kind of death that the culture knows nothing about, making room for the dance of resurrection. All right, what is that really saying? What Eugene Peterson here is saying is that these little gods that we oftentimes do not die to, that are a part of ourselves, these are like clutter. It's just clutter that fills us up. And the more clutter that we have, the less space, as he says, we have for Jesus, the less space we have for this new resurrected life. So what is this clutter? Well, one of the examples is very clear. It's in here, right? It's actually in verse 25. What's one of the greatest pieces of clutter that we have? The things that we don't like to say no to. Uh, um, and what is verse 25? Verse 25 basically says, uh, you know, what does it profit if someone gains the whole world and yet forfeits their soul? As someone has said, this is very clearly the sense that far too often we think that security and fulfillment, these gods that we have, they come by financial prosperity. 
And what is the greatest antidote, the spiritual practice that helps us to not be, have this sense of needing this wealth, of having wealth be a God? We've talked about this so many times. The greatest antidote to that is to be generous, right? What have I said? If you want to know how much of a claim does money, and at the end of the day, it's not just about the money, it's about security it gives us, um, um, this sense of feeling safe. Um, um, it's, it's not about that. If we really want to see how much of a claim does money have on us, then give money away, right? Now, this is clearly easy to talk about our capital campaign right after that, okay? But it's so easy that I don't want to do it because what's the, it's not that fun, if it's that easy. It's clearly true, but I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that. I do want to say this, though, just as a side note, that about a week and a half ago, I was told once again, I've been told this three or four times over the last six months to a year, I would say, about somebody, I think it's always been men, who retired and a few months later actually died of a heart attack. And whenever I hear about that, it's always, it's incredibly sobering. Now, I don't think the lesson there is, well, clearly you should never save for retirement because it's likely you're going to die immediately afterwards, right? I do know people who don't want to retire because they already have that fear because they've seen it or experienced it. I don't think that's what we should necessarily uh, take from that. I do think, though, that it should be this beautiful reminder to us to not wait to live lives of joy and generosity until you retire. I meet far too many people who say, when I retire, I will spend more time with my children and my grandchildren. When I retire, you know, then I will do this. Then I will give this. Then I will live this kind of life of joy and happiness. And what we know is that none of us are promised tomorrow. So if nothing else, let me just invite you, encourage you to begin to ask, are you using that kind of framing language? I will take control of these other kind of gods that are inside of me. I will do that once I retire, once I have enough, because that time may never actually come. But what are these other pieces of clutter? What are these other gods that are within us that make it difficult for us to deny them so that we can have more space for Jesus? Well, oftentimes you can find this, of course, in envy or, or being jealous, or as we already said, greed. There's all these kinds of things, and those are all good and right. Well, they're not good and right, but that's true. You know this. But this week, I was at a conference. I was at a conference of the Fellowship Community, which is a group of Presbyterian, warmly evangelical Presbyterian pastors mostly. And we were there. It was in Texas, um, and um, just for a couple of days. And there was this guy named Steve Cuss, which is an interesting last name. And, and, and Steve Cuss, he gave this great talk, and he talked about some of this clutter that we as leaders, but I would suggest it has to do with any of us, oftentimes have. And he says, this is the clutter that gets inside of us and, and that actually like, leaves very little room then for Jesus. Uh, very little room for us to be able to pick up the cross because we're spending so much energy with these things. And most of us don't have all five. We have one, you know, we have one or two maybe. What are those things? The first thing is this. The first is a need to be in control. Anybody ever feel that? Right? 
And if we're not in control, we feel this certain amount of anxiety, right? And how easily can a desire for control, when we don't, like many of us felt this, of course, during COVID, right? I mean, we didn't have this control, and so we began to try to control the people around us. Oftentimes, this is when you see it, and, and so we needed that. And it's very hard to not center your life around a need to be in control when you feel like you are not in control. The second thing he said was this, a tendency toward perfectionism. A need to always make sure that you get it just right. I'm going to make sure that this is perfect. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that everything is just so. And you can hardly sleep until you know that everything is just right. The third thing that he said was this, a need to feel like we always have an answer. This is especially true for leaders. I'll be honest with you. I have some of this. I've had this a lot during the property thing, right? Where I've been like, I've got to make sure I have everything. Because the last thing you want to do is be up front, you know, during the Q&A and have someone ask you a question. And the last thing you want to say is, I don't know, right? Why? Because people will be like, well, if he doesn't know, right? And all of a sudden there's the shame, right? Of thinking, here I am supposed to lead this and I'm supposed to have all the answers. And if I don't have this answer, then oh my goodness. And so, so maybe one or two sleepless nights. The fourth thing he said is this, a propensity for feeling like we always have to be there for people. Right? Many of us know people like this. I have someone in my family like this, I know, who always, like, like what, 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 what she, I have so many she's in my life, it's fairly safe to say that, that she always, right, she wants to be there for people, right? And so she's just always taking care of the needs, and she's just going from one thing to the next, and that's kind of, that's what runs, but it's almost a panicky, right? You can almost feel the sense, right? There's no sense of, of taking care of self or thinking about God nearly as much as there is, I got to take care of, of everyone else, right? And then the final one is this. A desire for people's approval. Okay, desire for people's approval. Anyone ever think about that? Anyone ever have this sense that you need people's approval? Right? Pastors are oftentimes desperate for people's approval. Uh, this guy, Stephen, uh, he has been a pastor for many years, and he talked about how this was the case, especially this last one, a desire for people's approval when it came to, uh, to when it came to his sermons. And so he said that. Uh, because it was such a big deal to him, right, that, that he would always, like, afterwards, he felt like he always had to preach like the Apostle Paul. Like, it always had to be almost as good as a Jesus sermon, right? He just, he felt this, right? He needed everyone, and he put a, an enormous amount of pressure on his wife, you know, as she looked over his sermon to say, well, what did you think, right? Is this, is it, is it Jesus-like, right? And so he really needed this. He needed that. Now, I never, I rarely don't do that, right? It's a double negative. Uh, so, Right, there's all this pressure. So he said he felt like that so much that in 2012, and he had the specific date, I don't remember. In 2012, he intentionally preached a horrible sermon. He said the stories had nothing to do with anything. He said the points were just super fuzzy, and he just kind of rambled on and on. He just preached this sermon that was just completely bad. And I don't know how theologically I feel about that. I know some of you are like, wait, was that three weeks ago? Was that what you were doing, Jerry? No, it's just bad. But he did this simply as this way of being able to see, wait, this seemed so important to me. This had been this God to me. I couldn't let go of this. I had to have everything because I needed everyone to say, what a great preacher you are. You did such a great job. And he did this so that he could see that, guess what? His heart kept beating. Life went on. Things kept happening even after this horrible sermon that clearly not everyone was going to, be, was going to approve. 
And so he did this as this almost a spiritual practice, if you will, of saying, how can I intentionally kind of deny myself of this need to have everyone approve? Now, here's what's fascinating about this. And I think it's what actually ties this into the reason why Jesus did. Jesus talked about who he was, how he must suffer, the cross that he was going to bear, and then how the disciples were also going to have to deny themselves. Here's what's fascinating. Let's look at all five of these things again real quickly. A need to be in control. We feel the need to be in control, but Jesus is the one who is omnipotent, meaning he is, excuse me, meaning that he is completely in control. He is all-powerful. Jesus is the one who is in control. A tendency towards perfectionism. Who was perfect? Jesus was perfect. A need to feel like we always have an answer. Who is omniscient? Who is all-knowing? Jesus, God is all-knowing. A propensity for feeling like we always have to be there for people. Who is, all, who is omnipresent? Only God, right? A desire for people's approval. Jesus came to suffer and to die. Why? For us. And yet, what do we end up spending so much time trying to do? We spend so much time trying to control and be perfect and have every answer and feeling like we're always there for people and getting their approval. In other words, we are doing the work of Jesus. But who was the Messiah? Jesus. And so there's this beautiful sense here, it seems to me, that what we have in this passage is the sense that if we, where do we start to say, look, I'm going to get this clutter out that Peter's in, this this clutter of God, a feeling like I always have to be in control, all these things. The only way to get that out is to remember first and foremost who Jesus is. And so every day we have to choose between picking up our cross, which means following the, the risen Jesus, or picking up our clutter, picking up those things that are trying to be God-like. But now here's what we oftentimes don't see. We as Christians try to do way too much. We try oftentimes to hold our clutter and the cross at the same time. I've told you already that Sherman, our dog, is not very well behaved. What may surprise you and is embarrassing to discuss is the fact that we did bring in a coach. Uh, Four times our dog coach came in. Uh, And as people say about these dog coaches, they're really not there to train the dogs. They're there to train the owners, and we aren't very good. That said, there is one lesson that I learned, which is that our coach um, told us that if you want Sherman to drop something, right, that he's not supposed to be chewing, which is about 95% of the time, (laughs) that you can't just say drop it, that instead you have to offer something that the dog should be chewing on, right? And so you you give him a, a bone or you give him something like that, drop it, right? And then, and only then, will the dog then, you know, pick up the thing he's supposed to be, and then he drops the thing he's not supposed to be chewing on. It's impossible for him to be able to chew two things at once. Which means, unfortunately, though, we try. We try to both gnaw on the clutter. We want to be in control. We want to be able to be perfect. We want to do all these things. And we want to gnaw on the cross at the same time. And so what do we end up doing? Here's what I'm convinced of. We as good, hardworking Christians, we get the cross in our mouths And we take it, and we take it a couple steps down. And all of a sudden, we face a situation, 
that's out of control and we want to be in control. Now, we could keep holding on to this, but man, it gets really nerve-wracking and we're not for sure is Jesus really going to take care of this. And so we, we drop it and we go back and we, we pick up that control and then we bring it up and we put it real close to the cross. We can have both. And then we think, oh no, we need that. We can't do that. All right, okay. okay, so we pick up our cross and we take a couple steps and all of a sudden we do something that's imperfect and we think, oh my goodness, I hate being imperfect. I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And rather than just holding on to the, the cross, we go back and we, we pick up that kind of that sense of that guilt and that, that sense of loss that we have of, of not being perfect. And we, we grab it in our mouths and then we take it up to the cross, right? And then we, then we go up a little bit further with the cross. And we say, okay, we got this, we got this, we can do this. And then we see somebody who has a nicer car than us or a nicer house or a better vacation. And we get envious and we love the feeling of being envious, don't we? So we drop the cross and we go back and we grab that envy and then we, we bring it. And we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, never really leaving behind wholly the clutter, the gods that are within us, and only really just kind of for a little bit picking up our cross and carrying it. And then we wonder why we are so exhausted. This Jesus journey is really hard. I mean, all this back and forth. But what Jesus says is daily. Right? And here's what I want you to know. It is really hard to just stop. I'm going to stop being envious. I'm going to stop feeling like I have to be in control. The way to stop picking those things up is not to keep trying to say, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop. It is instead to say, there's a good bone. <laughs> there's some scripture that I'm going to start every day with. There's some time in prayer that I'm going to spend every morning with. There's this time of silence that I'm just going to be chewing on this. There's a community of other Christians that I'm going to be with. I'm going to chew on this because the more you chew on that, the less savory the other things become to chew upon. And what I want to suggest to you all today is that the difference there makes all the difference in the world in terms of how we understand what it is to follow Jesus. When we think about picking up the cross, it can easily feel like drudgery. But what I want to suggest is it's actually incredibly life-giving. When you know that you do not have to be and you cannot be completely in control, that you do not have to be keeping up with the Joneses, that you do not have to do everything perfectly, that you do not need everybody's approval, that you do not need to please or, or, or be there for everyone, all of a sudden you begin to walk more lightly. As many of you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at... Um, I was in Pennsylvania doing a fly fishing retreat. I know you're like, wait, what does that mean? There really was a spiritual aspect of it. But uh, some of you have wondered whether or not I caught anything. And so um, I do want you to see this. Uh, uh, see, that's, that's a real fish uh, that someone else caught. And so, no, it was, I caught it. I caught it. And uh, so it was a great time. Uh, we had a wonderful time. Thank you uh, for allowing me to be away and doing that. I, I want to though, close with just this, which is that, uh, the second day we were there, it was brutal. It was just miserable. It was like in the upper 30s. It was raining. It was windy. It was a nightmare, right? And, and so, the, you know, our guys, they kept trying to say, well, you know, this is when the fish really bite. And I'm like, I don't care. I really don't care. So, uh, but we were out there anyways. And the second day, uh, I was out with the guys who were actually from altar ministry. They weren't guys from the river. They were from altar ministry. And when I saw them, I was really impressed because they came out, man, you should have seen them. I mean, they were geared up. You've probably seen people like this. They had these vests on that was full of stuff. Right, and they had all these multicolored strings that had different sizes, and they had all these flies, you know, here and in the back. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was. I mean, I looked at me, I was like, man, I am horrible. And they just came out. It was. It was incredible. Now, on this particular day, we also had a guest 
uh, a guest leader, if you will. Now, this guy was really good. His name was Josh. He was only 35 years old. And he was on the American fly fishing team. Did you know that America has a fly fishing team? I had no idea, but they do. They have a fly fishing team. He was on it for like five years. He was a world champion. He's currently the coach of the youth fly fishing team. They're going to Bosnia in the summer. This guy was really good. And when he got there, he had this whole opening conversation, you know, uh, this little lesson. And man, you should have seen those other guys around us. They were just, they were eating it up. I mean, it was incredible. They were like, wow. Now, I was not impressed, um, only because I had no idea what the guy was talking about. I mean, it was at this level that I was like, eh, I just saw you just threw in a rod and whatever, right? But no, there's this whole other layer, right? It was really impressive. At the very end of his speech, he's like, any questions? And this one guide, right, with altars says, hey, I got a question for you. How in the world do you fish with such little gear? Now, I hadn't really noticed it, but then all of a sudden I looked at this Josh guy who's world-class. He had like this one little thing, right? The rest of these guys are like, shh, shh, shh. You know, and he's just got this little thing. Well, he says, you know, I find that sometimes we, we try to take all this stuff with us and it really just complicates everything because you get in there and all of a sudden you don't catch something after a couple and you're like, oh goodness, and you're changing your string, you're getting a different fly and you're trying this. And he's like, you just spend all the time doing this. He says, but, but, but Josh, and then you should have seen it. He's like, but I just think it's just kind of, it's more simple, more light. And, and all of a sudden, then, you know, he goes out there and he's helping us. And we're like, will you please, we want to see you fish a little bit. He's like, no, 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 okay, right? And then he goes out, right? And, and the rest of us are like, right? And he's like, zing, zing, zzz, you know? And he's, I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I mean, this guy, he's just catching things right, left and right, right? And we've been out there for hours Man, it was a horrible day. And it's just incredible. And he's just so fleet of foot because he doesn't have all this clutter of stuff. And it reminded me of how Eugene Peterson kind of concluded this section on picking up your cross daily and getting rid of the clutter. And he says this. He says, whenever we are around someone who is doing this well, getting rid of all this clutter, picking up only the cross of Jesus, we notice the lightness of step, the nimbleness of spirit, and the quickness to laughter. You see, this is what it means for us to deny ourselves, to deny all of those other gods that are, that, are, that are vying for our time and our energy and are trying to say, you have to have this, you have to have this. But what might happen if every single morning we simply say, what am I going to follow today? Am I going to pick up a cross or am I going to pick up all of this clutter that promises life, but as I have learned year after year, only delivers anxiety and death. What will you choose today? The cross or clutter? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray that on this day you would help us to understand what it means to follow you what it means to let go of all the clutter that is in our lives and our hearts and to simply take up the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.